Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. One of the maybe most contentious, controversial things that happens in a number of police services around is when we start getting into discussions about race statistics. Well, the Hamilton police does track race statistics and now they are bringing in or putting together a panel to, as I understand it, help them figure out what to do with these and how to handle these and and where we go from here. Uh, Inspector Jim Callender joins me to talk about this. Inspector, thanks for doing this today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Let's let's get into that right off the bat, because this is one of those things I know over the years, it's been an area that's been absolutely fraught with controversy in different services, not necessarily Hamilton. Why do police services keep track of these things? Well, I, I think you, you touched upon it on your, your first little comment there. And, and uh, when we're talking about tracking some some data there, the Anti-Racism Act in 2017 it was uh was brought forth as legislation, and, and then they they in one of the regulations that uh, uh, you know uh, told police services that they they were they were mandated to track uh, use of force statistics as it relates to race and identity. Um, but the big difference is is that what you alluded to is there's a difference between data collection and a strategy, and, and what that means moving forward. And the goal of a of race and identity based data strategy is to to track those points of contact and then the decisions that are made. Uh, when when we deal with when the police deal with community and then to identify whether there are any disparities and that's the that that data collection and then when you move into a strategy is what you what is done uh, when you identify those disparities and that and that's where the analysis comes in to understand what that what those disparities mean and then what we hope out of it is we're able to take action to address the, those uh, disparities that negatively affect our communities. So for people to understand very clearly, are you collecting data on crimes committed or charged of people of certain races or just of police involvement and use of force on people of different races? As of right now, Scott, we're mandated to track uh, data that's related to race and use of force uh, with the police. However, when we talk about a strategy that talks about um, um, collecting data on individuals. That's something that when we talk about our strategy and building our strategy is why we need to connect with our community to, to understand from their uh, perspective and their lens, what do they want us to, to, to track and to collect and to analyze and to report back on. I think, so none of those, those specifics have been ironed out. None of those things are legislated to the police service to do so. It's, it's something that we know as an organization that we understand our responsibility to look at those disparities and in whatever form that may be with our community and then address them in the, in the scope of, of a police service. What, what else goes into the data tracking? And what I mean by that is, is there context that goes with these things or is it simply a number that says, um, you know, police use of force had to be used and the person identifies themselves as this particular race or is there a context that says, here's the circumstance under which the use of force was used? Because without context, these these things get very, can, can be used in so many different ways for good or for bad. Uh, I think, yeah, you're, you're delving into a strategy that, uh, or into like a topic that the strategy would, would hopefully pull out in, in the context, right? In the, in the understanding of the data. So when we talk about collecting data, if you're speaking in relation to use of force, yeah, we're looking at the interaction that the officer had and how, uh, what use of force was applied. And obviously there is context that is behind that, but, and, and then what a strategy will be uh, allow us to do is report back onto that with some sort of community uh, lens or through this community advisory panel to say, here's the data, here's the interaction, how does that, um, from the community side, how does that impact the community and how can the police service during that interaction, is there some sort of um, gap or disparity that, uh, that in treatment that we can address through our policies, through our training, through our procedures. To this point, and again, we don't know how this is going to be used exactly yet, or at least that's partly in the works. Do we know if use of force numbers in Hamilton are close, similar, widely different from other police services as far as it pertains to race and use of force? Uh, I, I can't you know, be specific about it. I think that when you look at uh, dis- disparities and dis- disproportionalities, in my understanding, in the context that I've been in, in provincial conversations, 
that we see very similar disparities uh, amongst our, our policing partners. So when this new um, group is going to be put together, this uh, the, the strategy and to to get this community advisory panel put together, do you, has the, maybe not you, but representing the police, do, does the police, leaving aside what someone else might bring to the table on this, do, does the police, do the police have a, an idea of a strategy it would like to implement before we even bring the community advisory people in? Uh, no, I think this is the kind of, we're taking a leadership approach on this in the sense that we know that this is a project that the police service must own and something that it, it revolves around our processes and our, our systems. Um, but that the importance of having the community involved is what anchors the sustainability of the strategy in the sense that we need to understand, like, I guess the easiest way to say is that we can't, uh, we can't assume that we have the answers to what the community is looking for. So we must engage the community, listen to what they have to say, learn from them, and that will build the strategy. So we are, we are open and we have frameworks that help us assist to look at potential ideas of how this strategy may be built. But it has to be specific to the Hamilton community and what the Hamilton uh, communities are looking for uh, out of the strategy. I should have asked this question right off the top because it seems like the obvious thing and it slipped right by. But what is use of force? I mean, I think I would have an idea what use of force is, but that seems like a pretty broad area. If you if someone is shot, that would be use of force. I assume if someone is tasered, that would be use of force. But how? what is the lowest bar for what constitutes use of force? Uh, you're, you're, you're probably speaking to the wrong, uh, individual obviously that comes out of our training branch and use force, but, um, when they are, um, deciding where that falls in the realm of what is trackable, then we have, uh, you know, standards in the sense of whether it's a, a soft, soft hand technique or to a hard hand technique, all those parameters. So it's not just the, what you've described as the, the top lethal force right. firearm used. It could be when an officer uh, engages somebody using their hands or, or any of the tools that they have on their, on their belts. But, but is almost anything, I mean, any arrest would involve some at the, even at the lowest level use of force. If you put handcuffs on someone, you could say that's a use of force, but I'm sure that's not what's constituted in this. So is no. this anything that involves a, a, a tussle or any kind of physical interaction between an officer and a person? No, there has to be, they say there is, there's parameters that fall within what qualifies and they, your prime example of, of placing handcuffs on somebody, that's not a use of force incident. So there has to be some sort of interaction between the individual and, and the officer. One last thing. I don't believe as of right now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because I know it's been discussed. You're not all wearing body cameras right now, correct? That's correct. Okay. If that were to come in, does that take away the need for this kind of thing or would that be a supplemental or a complementary thing to this because if you have body cameras presumably everybody could see what happened and determine on a case-by-case -case basis whether the use of force was justified uh, it definitely does not replace this uh, strategy moving forward like i say this is this is to identify those gaps and and in the, in the sense of that you're speaking it, it is something that is as consistent to it in, in the sense that it would i think it is supplemental to it but it's it goes beyond like our this strategy the race and any base strategy goes beyond use of force and I think it's closely getting tied to use of force because this is what we have been reporting on in previous years but that's a starting point that's definitely a launching pad for where we see this strategy moving forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, apparently this, uh, this panel will be brought together hopefully by mid-March and we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. Inspector Jim Callender from the Hamilton Police Service. Thanks for doing this. Very welcome. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was doing some reading over the Christmas vacation and one of the topics that I don't know why it suddenly was popping up over Christmas because it's been something that's been talked about for a while. And back in October, the Senate Finance Committee really started working on this. But again, for some reason, it really caught some traction around Christmas is the idea in Canada of a universal basic income. The Senate Finance Committee is looking into this. Should everybody, or at least those who have need, receive up to $17,000 a year, no catch, just you get it regardless, to help pay for stuff, which on its face sounds like a lovely gesture to help those who are 
struggling to get by. Here's the the catch, if you want to say that there's a catch. The parliamentary budget officer estimated, this was back in 2021, so two years ago, before immigration went crazy in this country with many, many, many more people coming in than we had had before, before all everything else that happened, uh, back then the estimate was that this would cost billion a year. I think it's probably very safe to say now that we would be looking considerably more, well into the $100 billion a year to pay for universal basic income. Is this an idea that would help or is this an idea that ultimately would end up doing more damage than good? Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, an associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, My pleasure, Scott. Happy New Year. Uh, This is... This is one that, boy, um, if you are against this, it sounds like you're an un- incom- non-compassionate, uncompassionate, right. mean-spirited person who doesn't want people who are suffering right. to get help. And yet I hear about numbers of $85 billion to start. And I just remember hearing about Tiff Macklin talking about how the government is working against his purposes, trying to bring down inflation by flooding the economy with money. And I think, is this not just going to create hyperinflation that makes everybody, including those people now, with an extra $17,000, is this not just going to make everything crazy expensive? Well, that's probably true. But let me get uh, down to fundamentals because this is what um, I've been studying, the the idea of a GAI or universal basic income for years because there's been a lot of studies on this going back most of my adult lifetime last 30 40 years um but i want to put some big picture facts on the table and this is as i said what drives me crazy about those ngos and those advocates they never say this but it's certainly implicit that right now we just don't do anything for anybody this is one of the largest urban legends that is such enormous nonsense if you look at stats data, which i have It's very publicly available. Right now, today, 2023, this country, federal and provincial programs are spending around a quarter of a trillion dollars. That's $250 billion a year. This is not pandemic support. This is the built-in income support programs across Canada every year, every year. That's unemployment insurance. It's old age pension. It's guaranteed income supplement. It's all of the income support programs, federal and provincial in Canada, a quarter of a trillion a year. On top of that, we have public health care, unlike the Americans who have to pay it out of their pocket. And that's widely considered to be part of the social safety net. That is another third of a trillion dollars a year. Then we have public and secondary high school uh, high school and tertiary education, which is also part of the social safety net. When you add up the amounts paid by federal and provincial governments across Canada, the so-called social safety net that we're so proud of when we talk about all the time, it's approaching $1 trillion annually, year after year. So the idea that we're not, quote, doing anything is just absolutely fraudulent. That is not true. Mm. It is factually not true. We are spending enormous amounts on the social safety net. That's the first point. That's very important. Secondly, it is massively expensive, as the PBL has shown. And, you know, you can vary it by saying, well, we won't give it to everybody. We'll only give it to people below a certain amount. I've seen figures that if you put in a an income testing component, you can get it down to 20 or $30 billion, this is still a staggering amount of money. But the third, and it's actually my most important objection, even though I'm dealing with it thirdly, this is madness, Scott. And let me explain why. I testified three times this year before House of Commons Finance Committee. And I said, you know, from 1970, and these are just arbitrary dates I use, but everybody, I think, understands why I use them. From 1970 until 2020, that's 50 years exactly, That is what I call the boomer half century. We, I'm a boomer. Maybe people maybe figured that out. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, We dominated the world. We dominated Canada. Everything was about us boomers. 
mass education, the explosion of universities, uh, enhanced universe, uh, uh, unemployment insurance. Because throughout that boomer half century, there were too many boomers and not enough jobs. So we always had chronic high unemployment. So we had all kinds of very generous and ever more generous income support programs because there weren't enough jobs. That half century is over. It is finished. It is kaput. And the, our parliamentarians are still acting as if it's 1972 or 1992. That, that era is gone. Two-thirds of the boomers have already retired. One-third will be gone in the next five years. We are facing for the next 50 years, the next half century, and everyone says this. The IMF says this. The United Nations says this. The OECD says this. Finance Canada says this. We are facing massive labor shortages. So what we're proposing now is to make the shortages much, much worse. Because you don't have to but work we, now, theoretically. We don't, why do we want to do that? We want to have less people working in the hospitals where we already have shortages so bad that they're not servicing people in emergency. We want to have less people in the old folks' homes looking after them. We have shortages across this country, and this will exacerbate and make the shortages vastly greater because now people can say, hey, I don't feel like going to work. I don't like my boss. I think that my boss is obnoxious. I'm going to stay home and I don't have to work because I've got a cash flow coming in that will more than cover all of my costs. Now, and, and you know, I don't know that, to, to be fair, I don't know that a $17,000 salary is going to lead a lot of people to do that. But, but I will say this, and this is, you know, my rudimentary economics. You're the expert, not me, but... One of the things, one of the reasons I'm hearing and is being written about is why we need this now is because of the high cost of everything. It is a very expensive place to live, Canada is right now. And yet the, sep the supplemental part to that is that, well, what's one of the reasons that it is that? Well, we're being told that when the government put all that money into CERB, that spiked everything, all that money flooding the economy, that spiked, well, is this not essentially another form of CERB that's going to do the exact same thing? And then the people at the top and the bottom are going to have these crazy price increases again. So everyone's going to be affected negatively. Well, that yes, of, of course. I mean, yes, it's putting this as stimulus. It doesn't matter what you call it. You can call it a CERB. You can call it a UBI. You can call it a GAI. John Maynard Keynes taught us this. And he taught us when you put money into the economy that wasn't there, government injection into the flow, you are stimulating the economy. There is no question about that this is stimulus and huge stimulus. In fact, Tiff Macklem testified that he was having a tough time bringing inflation yes. down because the government was uh, rowing against what he was doing. He was raising interest rates to cool down the economy, and the government was stimulating the economy with the 50 billion deficits it's running down. So, yes, that is correct. But I want to pick up on something you said. Well, who can live on 17000 No, the universal basic income does not say you are capped at 17000 it says we will give you 17000 regardless of how much money you're making. So let's say you're making, you're working full time and it's very modest. It's giving you twenty five or 30000 You can quit or go half time and now collect the basic income to supplement. In other words, there's no clawback involved. You can get the basic income and then make money on the side. It's going to stimulate not only inflation, it's going to stimulate people pulling out of the workforce. The What is called the, sorry for the jargon, the national participation rate, that's the percentage of adult people between 18 and 65, percentage, has been declining for years. For the last five, six, seven years, it's been declining. And the, 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 the workforce are the people that support all the rest of the society. And it's actually called the worker dependency, the, the dependency ratio. In 1970, there were eight workers for every person not working. We are now approaching three workers for every person not working. If I was a young person, and I hope there's young people listening to this program, this what this means, and I tell this to my students, the good news is there's going to be massive job shortages everywhere. So they're going to get, you're going to get paid big bucks. And you're going to get, people are going to be soliciting you to leave your job to go to another company for more money. I said, that's the good news. The bad news is you're going to be paying taxes like you have never, ever seen in your life because the three of you for every one, uh, three workers for every dependent, that's me, the boomers retired, is going to be very, very expensive. So you, yeah. this, this idea of universal basic income is going to fall on the shoulders of young people and middle generation X 
and gener and the people millennials yeah, and Generation Z. This is going to hit them right between the eyeballs because they are going to pay for it. There's no free lunch. Interesting. We got to run. Interesting that this is now catching so much traction at a time when we could be heading towards an election. Um, yeah, Cause some people I bet would vote for such a thing, but well, that's a discussion for another day. We won't make everything politics, even though it is uh, Ian Lee from the uh, Sprott school of business at Carlton. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier in the show today, we were talking about a, a story that I happened to see over the Christmas break. Well, here's another one that I wanted to get to. And this, again, is something that is not brand new, but for whatever reason, just suddenly started to get talked about over the last number of days, last number of weeks in a in a much greater way. Maybe it's because there wasn't much going on, and so everyone brought this back up. I don't know. But there, back in June, Air Canada decided to have in Vancouver a test run of a new, and this, at, at, for now, with this, it was voluntary, but with a new boarding process where you didn't need your passport. The equipment, the technology, read your face. It was facial recognition technology that apparently the idea that some people have is there's going to come a day when we're going to be able to just make everybody move freely through the airport. No passport needed, no security check may be needed. You will just, because, you know, your face will be recognizable and you can just walk into the airport and boom, it reads you, you're good, on you go to the plane. And if you've ever been stuck in a line at the airport for hours on end, this may sound like a very appealing idea. But there are also a lot of people who are raving, uh, raising some caution flags about this because, well, I think for probably obvious reasons to a lot of people. Let me bring in Carmi Levy. He is a technology analyst. He is a journalist who writes about this kind of stuff. Carmi, how are you today? I am great. Great to be with you, Scott. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. And I appreciate you doing this. So, you know... I tend to lean on the, I want the government and whatever government to have as little information about me as possible, not because I'm building bombs, not because I'm doing anything wrong. I just don't necessarily want everything that I do to be in the government's hands, maybe because I look at what happens in China with their social credit system or whatever else. And I think we're better off when we have less information in the hands of our government, but there's a lot of people, I think, who are going to look at this and go, yeah, but if you've done nothing wrong, what's the problem? Let's make the airports move better and let's go with this. Yeah, I mean, I sh- we all want convenience. We all want to move through the airport more efficiently. Certainly, we've all seen the horror stories coming out of Pearson and elsewhere over the last couple of years. Uh, that's really all we need to know. If technology can solve those bottlenecks, can get us on our way without having to camp out in the airport overnight only to miss our flight even the next day. Uh, then I'm all for it. But you're right, not at the cost of our privacy, not at the cost of our government having more information than we're comfortable with. And then, you know, some unseen bureaucrat with no controls can literally stand over our shoulders and, and you know, grab whatever private information they, they wish. Uh, it's frightening, right? It opens up a whole Pandora's box of issues as it solves the convenience thing. And so, you know, we're hearing governments, and in this case, Public Safety Canada is uh, pushing for uh, for you know that Air Canada pro- pilot project to be expanded. They're saying, hey, they're learning all sorts of stuff about facial recognition, how it can be more efficient, how it can move you very quickly through a complex environment like the airport. But um, we're not really hearing a whole lot about, well, what protections are you going to put in place to ensure that we don't end up with uh, a national surveillance system like they have in China, or we don't end up with a government agency getting hacked because now it's 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 a target because now it's collecting huge amounts of data from travelers who just want to get where they're going. So more questions than answers. And so as much as I want convenience, I am concerned that we're rushing headlong into this without really considering the dark underside, the potential for abuse, uh, and the kinds of impacts, the negative impacts, the damages that can cause to you and me. Are we... All right, let's be honest here. There will be people listening, and I'm sure, I I guarantee there are people listening who are saying, you two are just being paranoid because (laughs) 
there is not the evidence that having a system like this is going to lead to bad things. Britain, for example, has, I mean, I watched something, I don't know, 60 Minutes or something a while back. Britain has security cameras on like almost every street corner now, and they have not turned into China with a social credit system. So it's, it's, it's just the government that's in charge. And if we still have a democracy, then no one's ever going to do anything bad about this. Right. And, and look, you know, I, I, two words come to mind when I hear arguments like that, Phoenix Pay. You know, the federal government doesn't do a very good job with IT projects, certainly ones involving uh, private information. And we've certainly seen enough examples of government systems being compromised when they are data rich uh, that, you know, I think we should give ourselves pause. The reason we haven't heard of catastrophic breach in the case of the British surveillance cameras is they have those protections in place. They had those conversations in advance about internal controls, who has access to the data, under what circumstances, what kind of access controls have they built to, to, to prevent or at least minimize the potential for the kinds of abuses we've seen elsewhere. But we're not hearing that here, and that's what's concerning. So the potential for good is there, but in the absence of appropriate protective frameworks, uh, it's, it's only a matter of time. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, when there something negative will happen, when there could be a cyber attack, when there could be a loss of data, a breach of data. Um, you know, we know full well that governments have been targeted. And any time you start collecting very private information, which is the stuff that's on your passport, it is your face, which unlike a password cannot be changed if it's breached. Uh, we know that that sort of sets up a target for cyber criminals. Oh, there's a giant pile of data there. It's worth something. Let's go after it. So that's the that's the problem here, and our government, time and again, on complex technology projects, projects has shown that it simply isn't, isn't asking the right questions, isn't getting the right answers, and unfortunately, because of it, it puts us at risk if they proceed with projects like this. You see, you, when you say your face can't be changed, you're just not being creative enough. I saw the movie Face Off with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I know what... No. Um, I mean, look, there, there are two things I think that m people who like this idea and there, again, there will be people who like this idea. There are two things I think that they would point to as very positive. One is again, you can get through places faster because you don't have to wait in line. The other, and I don't know if this is something that would work, would something like this have prevented 9-11 because the people who were getting on the plane potentially might have been the facial recognition technology would have stopped them? It can certainly contribute to more security in that regard. In other words, if the technology that we have available today were available back in 2001, the potential would have been for, for the imagery to be picked up. And if these individuals had been on watch list, they could have been cross-referenced against the criminal database. And so, um, you know, it's, it, we'll never know, of course, but certainly the potential for a more positive outcome would have been there. And certainly in terms of securing public access areas like airports, if this technology, you know, and they're not talking about using this technology for that, but it certainly could be applied in that use case. And so we owe it to ourselves to say, okay, what are the advantages? And certainly physical security of an airport is one of them. And then we owe it to ourselves to measure those advantages against the risks. And then, you know, as long as we're to the positive, as long as the equation comes out positive, we should proceed. And I think this is inevitable. But we've got to make sure that we're asking those questions. We've got to make sure that we're getting those answers. Um, and yet again, I, I feel just looking at the literature and the exchanges around this particular initiative, we almost seem to be blinded by the good stuff without really thinking about what could happen if we aren't careful, if we don't project plan this as thoroughly as we possibly can. We know from past precedent that technology doesn't get applied to one thing and then stop there. If it works... Mm -hmm someone else is going to yeah. use it. So let's say it works at the airport and we're able to keep bad people out and move good people through because we now have confidence that they're there. Would it be a crazy stretch then to imagine we just, well, we just had on the news a story about in uh, Stratford jewelry stores being smashed up while people were grabbing stuff. So now would it be a crazy thing to say high-end stores and then not so high-end stores and then drug stores, because what we're seeing in the States with people coming in and cleaning off the shelves, will put in this kind of technology so that, well, we know that when Carmi comes in, well, he's, he's a good guy, so we can allow him to come in and shop here, but we know that Bob, well, he's got a criminal record, so we're not going to let him come in and shop because he's more concerning. Would it be crazy to see it move that direction? 
Oh, not at all. Uh, in fact, I mean, businesses of any kind, organizations, agencies, government agencies, uh, will always look to technology to solve problems that have not been previously solvable. So if it means that uh, you know they can prevent the next smash and grab or robbery and, and maintain a safe shopping environment and keep it cost effective, absolutely they're going to move in that direction. So technologically, of course, um, I think we, we need to sort of figure out, okay, now that the drugstore is collecting all of this physical, you know, imagery information, um, where is it going? Who has access to it? Uh, you know, is what databases is it being measured against? How am I ensuring that my identification data that the government is now collecting isn't somehow being cross-referenced into some other public database, that there are controls around it, and those controls are transparent and publicly available? Um, it's, it's when the data starts getting shared surreptitiously without warrants or anything like that in the background, starts flowing on networks and you and I aren't aware of it. That's when I get nervous. And certainly as we create these giant pools of data at the airport, at the drugstore, anywhere else we go, the potential for that kind of abuse continues to grow. And that's where we really do need to remain vigilant. But okay. So, but what we're talking about with that. If it was to take that next step, and again, I mean, I, I don't think it's a crazy idea to take that next step. We are not far there from what China has with their social credit system where you can't get paid, for example, if you break the law or if, you're, if your social score is bad, if you do something bad, if you break the law, you're banned mm. from fl- It's not a far step from one to the next. I agree, um, because it, it, if those and certainly if you live in China, those protections aren't in place because the Communist Party of China dictates the rules and everyone follows whether they like it or not. Right? Here in Canada, thankfully, we live in a very different form of democracy, and, and, and thankfully that isn't the case. However, um, we need to have all of that codified in advance before we turn that technology on to make sure that we don't go down the route that China has followed, that we don't see that kind of free flow of data between different government agencies, all to the detriment of individual rights. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't think it's, it's a wrong thing to say, can technology solve these problems for us? It is a right thing to say, what kind of controls are in place to make sure that we don't end up looking like a China or some other country where they've essentially used it as a way to invade individual rights. But we're opening the door, and that's the worry here. Yes. Uh, certainly it will benefit us, but it can also hurt us if we're not careful and if we don't sort of keep our feet on the brakes until we get all the answers that we're looking for. Well, let me throw one other one out there, and this is not to begin a debate about the trucker convoy, whether you support it or don't support it, but when mm-hmm. when people who were involved had their bank accounts frozen, even I think a number of people who didn't like the convoy probably went... Ooh, that's okay. So is that now the new norm? And if we have the technology that we don't even need to have police, for example, taking license plates and taking photographs of people that just there is, there are cameras that can tell, I think there's going to be a lot of people that even if they think this idea might be a pretty good one at an airport, would be skittish about something like that because, you know, here's the thing, Carmi, and I say this all the time, you may believe in the government of the day, but there's probably mm-hmm. a party out there, whether you're on one side or the other, there's probably a party when you say, well, I trust them, but if they got in, oh, that would be terrifying. You know what? Yep. They will get in. It goes back and forth in this country. And if that Absolutely. technology is there, you may be saying you're okay then with that party that you don't trust being in control of that information. Exactly. We're, we're this far away, you know, like, like millimeters away from, you know, the technological equivalent of a surveillance state. I walk the dog through the neighborhood. There are any number of homes with ring cams, doorbell cameras on the front pointing out at the street. I know that I'm on their footage and I know that that can be shared with police with proper warrants and all. But we also know there have been cases where the police were accessing that data through partnerships with Amazon without a warrant. And so, uh, you know, uh, we already live in a surveillance state because go walk the dog. You are being recorded and Lord knows where that data goes. So uh, we, we've got to we've got to figure this out because the technology is is, is proliferating through to, through society, even to something you can buy at a big box store and install on your house by tonight. Uh, and and you and I just as you know, you know, targets of this kind of surveillance have no protection whatsoever. So, yes, I can get through the airport faster, but. Now I can't walk through my neighborhood without fear of knowing where is that imagery going and how is it being used against me. Um, We have opened a significant Pandora's box, and unfortunately, we're never going to get to close it again. 
And yet, and, and again, I, I agree with you, and it does very much concern me, and, and yet I'll play devil's advocate here with the mm-hmm. good side again, because uh, someone else who was just in the news again recently was Joseph D'Angelo, who some people will know better re- more recently as the Golden State Killer, who mm-hmm. was caught all these decades later because of technology, because of creative use of technology. And this was with like DNA, one of those ancestry or whatever. I don't even know which one it was, but mm-hmm. there are positive things that can come from these. It's just that we have to trust that the people who are running them are honorable and trustworthy. And I don't know, maybe I'm the pessimist or the cynic or the skeptic or whatever, but I don't know how trusting I am. Yeah, I'm not either, because a lot of the laws that would govern those acceptable behaviors on the part of both citizens as well as law enforcement officials were written long before technology, surveillance technologies like facial recognition were a thing. So those laws have to catch up to hold people accountable uh, to behave in a, a way that is beneficial to society, allow the serial killers to be caught using this advanced technology, um, allow us to you know, have appropriate transportation efficiently and cost-effectively, uh, but also prevent the kinds of abuses where we see you know, people who shouldn't be accessing this data getting access to it and using it for whatever purposes they wish. So, they, they wish. so as long as we have those laws in place, and they better catch up, we've got to minimize that gap. I think we can have our cake and eat it, too. We can solve those those vexing problems, uh, but also remain protective from those who would use those technologies mm. against us. But, uh, you know, right now, and, and you and I have spoken about this many times, technology races ahead, the law struggles to keep up, and unfortunately that gap between the two continues to get wider. So I'm not optimistic that if facial recognition moves forward that we're going to have a legal infrastructure in place to protect us. Uh, but, you know, we've got to raise that. We've got an election coming up in, you know, what, you know, 2025, um, maybe that's a question that should be high on priority list for, for voters. I know when someone shows up at my door as a candidate and asks for my vote, that's one of the questions I will be asking them. It is, uh, it's, I mean, it's fascinating what we can do. What was, who's the person we got to run here, but who is the, uh, and maybe it's many people, I don't know, but the, the, you know, just because you can do something, should you do it? And I mean, this was, this goes back, remember, um, people will remember, uh, what was the clone sheep, Dolly the sheep. Yeah. It was the start of it. When, when we said, okay, now we can clone this animal, but if we do this, what's the next step? So the fact that we can, should we? And that, that, that's, mm-hmm. man, it's, it's as soon as you have people who now have the ability to do something, it's really hard to tell them, okay, now don't do it. Yeah, and that's, that really lies at the core of the, the current debate over artificial intelligence, is that it's moving ahead, but it's, it's, cre- it's generating more moral and ethical questions than it's answering as the technology races ahead. And we're not getting those answers, which is kind of scary. We're, we're rushing into some uncharted territory, and we don't really understand the implications of that or the damage that can be caused if we do so blindly. Mm. Uh, Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Always love chatting with you, Carmi. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You may have caught some on television because heaven knows it was on every channel, I think. Uh, Some of the opening night or opening nights of the new Professional Women's Hockey League. This is the new startup that has money behind it. The owner of the LA Dodgers is the one financing this, six teams in Canada and the States. And the attendance numbers so far have been really good. And the TV numbers still trying to get some. I haven't seen any officially yet on how it's done, but it's raising questions. There have been professional to a degree. Well, not even to a degree. There have been professional women's leagues before, but they've never really worked. They've never caught real traction and they kept going in some cases, but never really amounted to anything like we're seeing potentially now. Is this now the one that is going to stick around and work? Let's bring in Mike Stubbs. He is the host of London Live on 980 CFPL. He's also the London Knights play-by-play announcer. Mike, how are you tonight? Great, Scott. How are you? I could not be better. Happy New Year. What do you think about this? Do you think that this is now the magic formula they've discovered and this is the league that's going to turn women's hockey into something huge? Professional women's hockey. Yeah, I I think we have to reach into the closet and grab the proper measuring stick on this one because it's easy to say, okay, can this be a smashing success? 
I think it can be a success. I think what we've seen already is a success. I think if we were having this conversation 15 years ago, 20 years ago, no, I, I don't believe that it would have long lasting power. And maybe that's why we've seen other leagues and there were competing leagues for a little while. Maybe that's why we've seen them not have tremendous success. I think what it needs is time and how much time do we have? How much money can we provide? Because as we know, the sports landscape, Scott, look at how crowded it is. You have people who, if they want to be Spanish soccer fans living in Ontario, you can be. And you can watch every single game of the Spanish league. You can watch every single game of anything. If you're a big High Life fan, you can find that. So we have a really crowded landscape. But I think this is one thing that the league has going for it. It has the excitement around it. And everybody knows if somebody can be excited about something, and if you can learn the players, learn the teams, find out some of the stories, and they have some storytellers. You mentioned all of the games on TV. That's where stories are being told. If we can do that, then there's no reason to believe that this league cannot be akin to junior hockey, university football. Can we even say the CFL in some ways, where maybe you're not seeing the players that are making millions of dollars, but you still have that real stronghold in a big enough group of fans that allows you to sell enough tickets, that allows you to pay your players, and allows you to have your league succeed. Yeah, you know what? I, I think you make a very, very good point about the fact that it's a very, very crowded sports landscape. And this is why I am crossing my fingers and I am hoping. But here's the thing, and I said this earlier in the week, and I'm going to reiterate it. I I think that for this to work, people have to to grow to be passionate about the league, not just passionate about the idea of a women's league. I think there's a lot of people who love the idea that there is a women's professional hockey league now and say, this is way overdue and it's way past time. And then if you sat them down and said, so are you going to buy a ticket and are you going to clear out time in your schedule to tune in and watch every game on TV? they may not be quite as quick to answer yes. If they can, if we can get to the point where people are really on board and have favorite players and favorite teams and feel passionately about it, I think it'll work. If it's just, I like the idea that this league exists, I don't think that survives. Yeah, the idea, no. And, and I think we can't be fooled by the fact that it is the idea that is going to bring eyeballs right now and is going to put fans in the seats right now. This is the idea stage. But I do think that there has been a lot of hype. And one thing, Scott, I think we have to look at is, okay, if they're going to market, who are they going to market to? And obviously it is a market that is untapped, which is young women, young girls. And girls hockey has been growing exponentially for a long time you've got a lot of girls who are very passionate about the game that they play can you turn them into fans who don't just want to one day play in that league but can you turn them into fans who want to pay attention to that league right now and i think with the proper marketing you can and that's where this comes down it has to be marketed right you have to get the stories of those players out you have to learn about them. You have to become attached to them. That's why AAA sports don't work in Canada. We love that attachment. We're not just going to paint ourselves green and go and jump up and down and scream. That's a, a different way of appreciating sports. But we want that attachment. We want that analysis. And so if we can be provided with that, I think you're not just marketing to young girls. I think you're marketing to a whole host of people who enjoy hockey. But if you're going to turn it on and say, well, you know, it's not as good as the NHL. The level's not quite the NHL. Well, of course it isn't. And it's not going to be. But you've got to appreciate it for what it is, which is a very good brand of hockey. And then it's about finding ways for that league to sink in so that, yeah, you're you're fired up about it. You are behind Toronto or you are a fan of Montreal or Ottawa or whatever cities are expanded to next because I think we're going to see that. I think we're going to see some more expansion to try and bring in maybe some not small markets but smaller markets 
because I really believe that's a good way for this league to grow too. So Mike, how do you do that though? So you just raise a point that I, I think is a very valid point, although some will blanch at it, which is this is not going to be the same as the NHL. It's just not. And and I and let's not be silly. Anyone who says that it's exactly the same are not being realistic. It's not. So how do you make the case? How do you sell this when it's not the same as what we're used to? I think what you do is you really draw on local connections as much as possible. In this area, it was a huge story when Ella Shelton, who is from this little place called Foldens, Ontario, which is just outside of Ingersoll, Ontario, when she scored the league's first goal. When Ella Shelton made Team Canada, that was big news. And so I think that's what you've got to do. I always fault the Canadian Olympic Committee because they don't seem to get it. The Canadian Olympic Committee, when the Olympics come around, should be shoving the hometowns of every athlete at us, left, right, center, above, below, any way that they can get us that information. They never do. If you go on to the Canadian Olympic Committee website, you can't find somebody's hometown without clicking four times. Hmm. And that's the whole whole thing. You, You want ties to you. You want to know, hey, that person is from our hometown. That person is from... You know, where I used to play hockey, where I used to work out, whatever it happens to be. And I really think that's a good way to start. And then it is just about finding those other stories. Who has a connection to something else, whatever it happens to be. Because I think we can look at the success of the Women's World Cup of Soccer that just went by. We had a lot of eyeballs on that. And it was great competition. And was it the same as the Premiership? No. Was it the same as you know you name the soccer league no but it's it's its own thing you're not looking for this league to be like any league it's its own league but they've really got to find ways to get those connections in and that's why i think if you looked to expand at some point because as we all know things get lost in toronto the toronto argonauts get lost in toronto and they've been around forever Um, If you're looking to really take hold in the big cities of Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, New York, I don't know if that's going to happen. But I think if if you maybe look, how about a a model like some of the basketball leagues that we've seen start up that maybe don't have the big cities involved, but they have cities involved, and you see some fans that attach themselves to it. I think that's the road. I'll throw one other suggestion out, though, with the big cities, and that would be there's long been talk that the NHL will do like the NBA and get involved when there is one league. The NHL has said that. When there's one women's professional league, then come and talk to us and we might be involved. If the NHL, because all the six teams, New York, Minnesota, Montreal, Ottawa, Boston, Toronto, all have NHL teams. If the NHL was to get involved and somehow the teams from those cities were involved. And then you do what the Leafs did, for example, with the Raptors. I don't know if you remember this. People remember this. When the Raptors first started, if you wanted Maple Leaf season tickets, you had to buy Raptor season tickets back before in the early days. If all of a sudden everybody who wanted Leaf season tickets had to buy season tickets for the Toronto, whatever they're going to be called or vice versa. Now, at least the one thing you're doing at least is guaranteeing that you're going to sell out every game. Well, Scott, you raise an outstanding point, and here's what I'm waiting to see. If I'm going to reach over and grab maybe not a tinfoil hat, because it's not so much a conspiracy, but it is a curiosity. Is there a hat for curiosities? I don't know. We we're going to make one. We're going to make one. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me put that hat on, because you said it. You've got six teams, and they all have NHL City counterparts. And right now, we have no nicknames for any of the teams. Those are apparently coming in the offseason. So you're watching Toronto play Ottawa. You're watching Montreal play New York. Whatever it is, there are no nicknames. Is there something in the works? And we also have Brian Burke very involved in this. And Brian Burke has been very involved in the National Hockey League for a long time. So is there something that hasn't quite been brokered yet in terms of some sort of deal that may exist? And maybe that's why we will see some kind of naming mm. that resembles the NHL or at least has those those color schemes, whatever it happens to be. Maybe that is to come. So that's a really interesting thing to watch. Well, and all and, six of these teams are all big, um, deep-pocketed 
NHL teams, uh, even Ottawa, which is a small market, but Michael Anlauer is a deep pocketed owner. You know, if, if the cost to operate and pay salaries and run a PWHL team, let's say even if they increase salaries, let's say it was $2 million a year. In the grand scheme of things, that is peanuts to an NHL team. They could easily do that and keep this league going, and it costs them essentially nothing. And if that's the road they choose to go, then wipe out everything I've said about trying to grow it up. If they support, if that's coming, then it does change the landscape completely because then you do have that time. Because you said it, the dollars are there, the operation costs are not going to be that big, salaries are under $100,000. We're looking at some are, what, 35000 all the way up to 80000 So we're not seeing huge chunks of money needed in order to pay players, and then that buys them some time. And then we get to see what the growth is. Then you get to see what the revenue is. Look at the WNBA. It doesn't necessarily fill buildings. I I think attendance is larger than what it used to be, but it has survived for a long time with the NBA's help. Maybe a similar format could be figured out here because my format, I I don't know. Well, it's Mike, the WNBA has survived, let's not say with the NBA's help, because of the NBA's help, but that's notwithstanding. There is still a league, a professional women's basketball league. They are still playing. It would not be here if the NBA had not propped it up. There's absolutely no question about that. And the only way, if if what we're talking about happens, and I think your conspiracy theory is a very interesting one, and I wouldn't be surprised if the fact that there's no nicknames, because it makes no sense that teams would come in with no nicknames unless there was something going on. The one thing I think that this league would do that would destroy itself is if it suddenly decided that we've got 32 NHL teams now, let's have 32 professional women's hockey league teams. Let's have one with every city because even the NHL back in the late 60s into the 70s, as it expanded, when it went from six to 12 teams, there were not enough players yet ready. And Mike, when was it that we finally stopped saying, oh, this is such a watered down league? It's only recently. It's only yeah, recently yeah. the NHL. You, If you all of a sudden have way too many teams, the product goes way down. That's what would destroy this. But six teams or 10 teams of decent rosters, good rosters, bolstered by the NHL, maybe you got something. Keep it small. Keep those contacts together where they're promoting each other. That cross-promotion is always great. Yeah, I mean, if we were sitting in that marketing boardroom, we're making it sound too easy, Scott. I don't know if it's going to be quite that easy, but I'm happy to see it happening. Yeah, there you go. Well, again, the idea, every I don't know that there's anybody who's not with the idea of this. It's just a question, can this league get people to go beyond that and tr- be truly, truly passionate about this league? And that we're going to see, but... I, I'm not going to rule, I'm not going to vote against it. It's, it's you know, they finally have dollars behind it. And the guy, if a guy can pay Shohei Otani $700 million to play baseball, you can probably pay a few million for, for that's the same owner, the same, yeah, he can probably pay a few million for women's hockey. We never even got to baseball, Mike, we're going to have to do this again. We were going to talk Jays, but uh, this got us going. Really appreciate you doing this. Mike Stubbs from Anytime, London Scott, Live and the London Knights. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.